The Dudes of Kung Fu podcast is brought to you by Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. In celebration of their newly launched WCI newsstand platform, Wing Chun Illustrated is giving listeners of the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast a free one-month all-access subscription. Go to wcinewsstand.com and click the register button in the upper right corner. Use voucher code FREE4U. That's F-R-E-E, the number four, and the letter U, all caps. Don't forget to activate your account by clicking the link in the welcome message. The Dudes of Kung Fu love Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Hey all, we have a brand new exciting offer from Audible just for our awesome fans. Listen to the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast and go to www.audibletrial.com slash D-O-K-F and get a free 30-day free trial and one free audiobook. I use my audio account every day for my commute to and from work. I love listening to audiobooks, and it really makes my commute so much better. Right now, I'm currently listening to Quitters Never Win by UFC champion Michael Bisping. This offer is available right now only for dudes of Kung Fu listeners. So remember, go to audibletrial.com slash D-O-K-F after the podcast and sign up today. There's no commitment and you have nothing to lose. Sign up today. Now let's get into the podcast. Dudes of Kung Fu. Please welcome your hosts, Alex Richter and Big Sean Madigan. Hey, you ugly bastard. Haven't seen you in a while. What's going on? Nothing much, man. It's really uh, really good to be back and uh, see your beautiful face again across my screen here. I, I know how I look. You don't got to tell me. <laughs> I hope everybody out there in uh, Dudes of Kung Fu land is doing well. Uh, what's so you new had, exciting? Well, well you, had, you had a guest last So I, I apologize. I haven't had a chance to uh, listen to the last episode because I've been so busy this week. But you had we had a guest last week, right? A yes, guest, we had a, a guest, guest host. A guest host, uh, Sifu John Crucione, uh, stepped in. He did a great job. We um, we talked about uh, the Bicey ceremony. John John Crucione had written an article once about the Bicey ceremony that I really enjoyed a long time ago, and um, so I thought it would be interesting to talk about how he viewed the Bicey ceremony and and um, its its importance and not importance, you know, to a relationship between a Sifu and a student. And um, it was, I thought it was a really, really good episode. It was, uh, I think you'll enjoy it when you listen to it. Nice. There was some, there was some really good stuff, really good conversation going on. And, uh, and we want to thank John for stepping in like that. We appreciate it. Yeah, sometimes as uh, our, our loyal listeners know, sometimes our schedules don't really collide the way we want them to to be as regular as we'd like to ideally we would live next door uh, from each other have a studio in between and be able to record uh, at least once a week if not more it would be a lot easier but you know we both have uh, pretty pretty busy lives and uh, we, i apologize uh, you know to the fans that you know who want us to be a little bit more consistent we would like to but it's kind of like it's kind of all these things have to align on a graph for the uh, for us to be able to put these uh, episodes for you guys and make no mistake about it, if Alex lived next door to me, he'd be peeking in my window every night, too. He's a sick bastard. I know that. <laughs> hey, to catch I heard a it, glimpse of me without a shirt on. So. I heard it was perfectly normal. That's what they keep telling me, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, anyway, um, I was in, uh, I think the last time we did a show together was right before I went to Hong Kong. Is that correct? Yes. And I remember thinking like, so the whole world is falling apart in Hong Kong. Hey, Alex, let's go for, go for a trip. <laughs> yeah. So I had kind of planned to do this trip for a little bit. But as most people uh, who follow the news know, uh, Hong Kong is embroiled in some uh, pretty, pretty intense protesting right now. You have... Uh, um, a lot of a lot of people in Hong Kong who are not very happy with some of the things that uh, the Chinese government is trying to oppose in Hong Kong. And um, so, yeah, things are getting a little wild there. Now, my family, uh, including my, you know, my, my wife and and of course, my parents the, and many of my students were not excited about me going at this time. As a matter of fact, a few of my students were going to come with me. <laughs> and uh, they kind of bailed at the last moment because they saw the news and got kind of scared. And this was difficult because my wife was not excited about me going. And in the coming like days before I went to Hong Kong, people were like, wait, you're still going to Hong Kong? And they would say stuff like that in front of my wife. And I'd be like, shut up, shut up. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't, don't mess it up. And, and so um, I Did she I, check the insurance policies. Now yeah. Well, you know, as I may have mentioned before, she she always wants to know which of the books on my shelves uh, are are the um, the rare ones, so that if I croak, she can sell them. Like, <laughs> I have I have two copies of the uh, like nineteen fifty two Jack Dempsey's Championship Fighting, which was one of Bruce Lee's favorite books. I have two original copies of that. I'm like, yeah, okay. If I die, you'll definitely want to sell those, <laughs> like, and a few other ones. And um, yeah, so. While I was in Hong Kong, anyone who follows my social media knows that I posted some pretty innocuous stuff from Hong Kong, just hanging out and doing the, you know, working on the project I was working on. I didn't really post anything about the protests. And that was partially so that people at home would not worry. But it was kind of nuts in Hong Kong. Like now that I'm back. Oh, yeah. um, and so basically all the protests are scheduled. So, you know, OK, they're going to be in. Chunwan on this day and Central on this day. So you just know to avoid those places those in areas, advance, right. right? But then they also had unannounced protests, and I got caught in three of those. <laughs> wow. And, um, you, you know, it, it's like, you know, not like I don't want to get too political or anything like that, but uh, it's not the protesters I was afraid of when I got caught in, in the stations. Um, the police in Hong Kong are off the rails right now. It's really right. wild. And so um, I even saw a couple undercover cops dressed as protesters. And they did a really poor job because I could see their guns. And it was like no one in Hong Kong owns a gun unless you're a cop or you're maybe a gangster. Right, sure. And then when you see a black-shirted protester with a mask on <laughs> and a sidearm, I go, hmm, I think that guy might not be a protester. Right. I need to get off this train like 10 minutes ago. So, right. um, yeah, it was pretty wild. It was also uh, – yeah, I've been to Hong Kong now. I think this was maybe my 27th or 28th trip to Hong Kong since – That's amazing. Since my first one when I turned 18. And this was the first time um, – I'm, I'm not going to say – I didn't feel unsafe because honestly – I'm a white dude. When I walk down the street, most people do not assume I have anything to do with the protests either side. Right. Right. right, um, right. Although there are some foreigners in Hong Kong who are also protesting as well. But like it's pretty easy for me to kind of skate out of that situation with no one caring because I don't look like anybody who's involved. But it was the first time that I felt a weird vibe in Hong Kong, like Hong Kong in terms of a world city is actually one of the safest cities in the world. I think like. 
the statistic was like uh, two years ago. I think they had one death by by gun or something. Wow. And, and and that was like, you know, that's not normal that something like that happens. And you, right, you right, right. violent crime is not something, you know, that you you as like a normal citizen of Hong Kong or as a tourist ever need to really worry about. But this was the first time I was in Hong Kong and I wasn't worried like for my safety, but like you know, as a New Yorker, you have various threat levels because we're used to being in different places, you know? So it's like right. there, there's some places you go and like you're aware, you're not scared, but you're kind of looking around. Sure. You're just like, as New Yorkers, we understand these, it's on a spectrum and there are number of levels. And this was the first time I was in Hong Kong where I, I was definitely in a state where I was like aware, like who's around, what's going on, like who's near the door, um, how, what kind of people are on the train right now. And, and so it was weird because Hong Kong is a place where I never once felt that I needed to even look over my shoulder once in my life. And this was the first time where, yeah, it was a little different. There was graffiti, like protesters spray graffiti, like, you know, with their demands. And it was the first time I saw like graffiti in subway walls in Hong Kong that doesn't exist. And so uh, it, it was it was definitely a wild time. But I'll tell you what, I was happy that I went because this is definitely a historical time for Hong Kong. And it was really amazing, like to be there firsthand and to kind of see it and not have to sure, just see it in the news. Like I know what's going on over there. And, and that was uh, and I'll never forget that. So I hope uh, I hope it gets sorted out uh, because I'm, I'm probably going to go back in January or February. So if Hong Kong is burning or not, I'm going to be going back. So uh, hopefully it's yeah. not burning. Yeah, my brother went to Hong Kong and he he absolutely loved it. He uh, he had a wonderful time. Yeah. And um, he. he 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 loves Asia and and um, and uh, but he and he you know he loved Hong Kong. He thought Hong Kong was amazing. Yeah, Hong Kong's he's, a very he's not a kung place. fu guy. Right. He's just into Asians. Well, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't uh, honestly like if you're a kung fu fan and you go to Hong Kong, you need to talk to people so that you know where to go. It's not that easy to find it anymore. Um, Hong Kong is just a great city. It's a great world city. So I would say. Sure. You don't have to have any interest in martial arts and there's so much to do over there. Um, but um, as as I mentioned uh, on the last show that I was on, I, I, I did go to Hong Kong on a project this time. So I normally go on these kind of sightseeing tours with my students. But this time um, I did the this was the first trip for the Yip Man documentary. And so um, the the new uh, documentary that I'm working on, which is actually something I've been working on for a while, but I have a new team behind me now, which is really, really good. Uh, it's going to focus a little bit more on my relationship with uh, Sifu Chan Chi Man. And because he really now is kind of the elder statesman of Wing Chun in Hong Kong, I believe that um, he is the eldest senior living student of Yip Man in Hong Kong today. Wow. And uh, uh, and he's you know he's still in really good shape. His mind is really clear. And another advantage uh, in general is he speaks English really well. So um, he's right. able to he's able to tell these old stories. And so I'm really worried that ten years from now or fifteen years from now, if some of these students of Grandmaster Yip Man are all gone or most of them are all gone, that the Yip Man movies start to become the new narrative about what Yip Man was like. And then we have a similar problem that we have to a certain degree with Bruce Lee. Um, although sure. luckily with Bruce Lee, we have interviews with him. He, we have writings, we have notes, 
and he's a little bit more, uh, even though he lived essentially in the same time, he died within seven, eight months of Yip Man, but we have just a lot more available on Bruce Lee than we do on Yip Man. And well, Bruce Lee was younger, so he was, you know, yes. for, whatever, for whatever little bit of advancements there were in, in media, yeah. Bruce Lee was media hip. Absolutely. And, and he was looking to promote himself. Right. So he put himself on tape, he put himself on film. Right. And he was putting himself out there, probably more than the average guy. For sure. His age of that time period. What, what's also interesting about, about Bruce Lee in general, and, and this is something that even uh, I have friends in Hong Kong who are avid Bruce Lee collectors. And what's interesting is the sheer number of photos available of Bruce Lee. And for someone in that time period, I mean, you know, for our uh, millennials who listen to the podcast, you know, uh, cameras didn't always used to be on phones, right? And, right. you know, taking photo, taking photographs used to be like a laborious process. You had to put the film in there, you took photos, and you didn't instantly see whether the photo was good or not. As a matter of fact, if you had a roll of film in your camera, maybe you had, tw- what was it, 24 photos or something, right, right? exactly. It would be months sometimes before you actually... Yeah. By the time you saw the pictures. And you shot them very sparingly unless you were like a professional photographer. It's like a roll of film. Those 24 photos could last you a long time before you developed it and then realize, oh, yeah, I forgot that we took that photo with this set here, right? Absolutely. Absolutely agree. But Bruce Lee is was like the sheer number of photographs that exist of Bruce Lee is really, um, really quite amazing because I thought that I had seen every single photo available of Bruce Lee that there is. And I'll still every now and again, I'll be on Instagram or Facebook and someone will post something. I'll be like, I never saw this photo before. And for someone of that time period, uh, it's really, really quite remarkable. But of course we don't have the same thing with Yip Man. We have, uh, we have two interviews and everything else (coughs) is somebody telling us about Yip Man. You know, it's like, Besides, we have the Tang Sang footage, which is, you, you know, you, ha- you have to know the dude who's got it to see it. We have the Yip Chun footage, which everyone can see on, on YouTube. And beyond that, we got two interviews with New Martial Hero and everything else is hearsay. So it's, you know, kind of putting together that quilt, that patchwork quilt of like, what the hell is even true is a pretty daunting task. And this is what I'm attempting to do in in as best of a way as I can, given the resources we have, namely given who's still alive right now, who knew Yip Man, right? So right. Um, this is what I'm working on. I, I, I actually hired a professional cinematographer in Hong Kong, uh, a German guy who lives in Hong Kong. He's been living there for 20 years. He speaks Cantonese, and he's worked on Hollywood films and Hong Kong films, and we hit it off right away. Um, his name is Mark Oberdorfer, and he... Um, I, I met with him while I was in Hong Kong. I told him about the project, and he was like, I want to be part of this right now. And he decided I was going to shoot Chan Chi Man on my own video. And he was like, no, 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 let me do it. And I'm like, okay. He comes in full professional rig, two camera shot, lighting, everything. We have Chan Chi Man in full cinema grade video right now like you could put this thing in imax the quality that we have of chan chi man right That's now wonderful. and we did two days worth of interviews with him where he told us all about his background he literally told us every single yip man story he could remember he told us what it was like to learn from yip man how yip man taught 
uh, him, how Yip Man taught other people, <laughs> and he would get up and demonstrate stuff. And the second day, uh, Chan Chi Man demonstrated like some knife, some pole, some wooden dummy. He talked how about how Yip Man taught him how to use the wall bag. Like it was unbelievable. Like he just That's opened so up. Cool. And he also told a lot of stories, and not all of it is obviously going to make it into the documentary because we already have way more than we could ever use in a feature-length documentary. So I'm thinking about maybe chopping down some of the stuff that we might not use into like little vignettes and posting those uh, after the documentary comes out. And he also told us a bunch of off-the-record stories, which we have on video, but I'm not necessarily going to put it online or I'm not necessarily going Uh to put it um, uh, in the documentary about uh, some of Grandmaster Yip Man's students, including some who later became very famous. And maybe they, they maybe they weren't the hottest thing back in the day when they were learning. So I got a bunch of like salt the old stories, which was like, oh, That's I never. Cool. Uh, yes, yeah, so it was really great. And and you know he's in that he's in that period of his life. He's eighty three years old. I think you all reach a hump in your life where you just don't give a crap anymore, and you're like, right, sure. I don't care if people get mad at me for saying this. This is what happened, and I'm just gonna let you know about it, right? Um, you know, whereas when you're still young and you still have a career, you might, you know, parse your words a little bit more carefully, right? He's kind of a little bit beyond that right now, which is, uh, which is great. Hey, everybody, you're listening to the sounds of New York right now. (laughs) (laughs) And in in case you guys are wondering, that's from the Staten Island side. That's not from the (laughs) Queens side. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, I got all these sirens going off. By the way, uh, Staten Island has been like on my on my mind all the time because there are like two Wu Tang uh, shows out now, and I'm a huge Wu Tang Clan fan. And of course, any everyone knows Wu Tang Clan is from Staten Island, and so there's a Wu Tang documentary on Showtime in four parts, which is amazing. And then there's also a Wu Tang like uh, uh, dr- dramatic series with actors playing the members there, and it's all in Staten Island. And like every so every time I see it, I always think of Sean and, and going like. I gotta check that out. I never yeah, it's, it's, I should definitely check that out. Yeah, it's quite good. The uh, um, the the docu series I think is on Hulu, and or no, the document the documentary is Showtime, and the uh, drama is on Hulu. So, uh, but really quite good. Really, definitely recommend it. So, That's cool. um, so you talk about the you know the old stories of Vietnam. The closest I ever got to that with like a one on one was when I went to a uh, a party with the Moyat family. And um, Moi Bingwa was there. And uh, my Sifu introduced me to Moi Bingwa. And he was such a sweet guy. And he said to me, uh, he, goes, uh, he goes, all of this here is because of me. And I honestly didn't know the history uh-huh. back then. I was like, oh, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, he had introduced Moyat to Yip Man. Right. You know? And I was like, I was like wow. You know, I mean, I, it was amazing. And it was just so cool. He was such a sweet guy. He just sat there and talked to me for, I mean, 40 minutes of just telling me stories about Yip Man and Moyat and them having, uh, I'm going to screw up all the words here, but like, you know, having tea or like uh, snacks yeah. like at some place, like almost like across the street. Yeah, yum, where... yum cha, which is basically having afternoon tea and food, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how they would go to this place that was like across the street or around the corner from where they were training, and 
and uh, all from where Yip Man lived, something like that. And, and he would tell me, he was just telling me these stories. And I was like, kind of like really geeking out about it, you know? And, um, and, and, and then he, and then he fixed my tan top, which was kind of <laughs> cool. He, he was like, he said, he said to me, he goes, let me see, you know, let me see the first form. And I started doing the first form and he just shook his head. No, 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 no. My, my thumb was in the wrong place. It was great. It was just a really cool experience to, um, right. That's awesome. I, again, I, I don't know. I didn't ask. I don't know how much time he had with Yip Man. I don't know if he, you know, I have no idea, but just to meet a guy who knew Yip Man was really cool. Just like hanging out with Steve Golden for all these years, knowing that like, you know, he sparred with Bruce Lee. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like, I got, I got yeah, to spar with a guy. Right. Yeah, this stuff's I got crazy. to spar with a guy who sparred with Bruce Lee. Yeah. Like that's kind of cool, you know. It's right. I, I'm doing cheese out with a guy who cheese out with Bruce Lee. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's pretty cool, you know. You know, Steve Golden came up in my trip to mm-hmm. Hong Kong because I met a uh, I met a Sifu in um, on the Hong Kong Island side. Uh, by the name of uh, Sifu C.S. Tang. And he used to learn Wing Chun from Choi Sung Teen back in the day. But now he's kind of like an internal martial arts guy. Like he does Tai Chi, uh, Pakwa, Xing Yi, those kind of things. And uh, one of my uh, Wing Chun friends said, oh, you got to meet this guy. He's like... He's like the encyclopedia of the Hong Kong martial arts history, right? And I'm like, oh, I got to meet this guy. And then um, I met with him at his school, and we talked a little bit. And then, of course, he very quickly figured out what a geek I am in Wing Chun. He asked me a couple questions about Hong Kong martial arts stuff. And, of course, I was able to to answer it, and he was impressed. And also, I... Uh, I said a, a famous line from Bruce Lee's Fist of Fury in Cantonese because he asked me, how did I learn Cantonese so well? And I said, well, I learned by watching all of Bruce Lee's films in Cantonese. So I said, all the first things I was able to say in Cantonese were like, you know, the Chinese, we are not sick men. And like, hey, you listen, now you're eating paper, but next time you're going to be eating glass. <laughs> like, So those were literally like all the first things I learned. <laughs> To say in Cantonese, right? So I knew enough Chinese to like, you know, uh, challenge someone to a fight or really piss somebody off. So we went to a restaurant and he pulled out his iPhone and he says, uh, Sifu Alex, could you please say that line from Fist of Fury in Chinese for me? It's so, he's like, you say it so accurately and it's so funny to see a white guy say that. So he took, <laughs> he took this video of me where I, I said the line in, in Chinese, like, now you all remember the Chinese, we are not sick men, right? And I said it like exactly the way Bruce Lee says it with like the same cadence and everything like that. And he was laughing. I just thought it was really funny to well, Come make... on, let's say it. Let's say it, man. I want to hear it now. Okay, so it's... And, and so it's like... is like you, right? Like you plural. Right, right. Which is like remember. It's like you, re- you remember. Which is Chinese or Chinese people. Mhai are not sick men. Bang fu. So he goes, And like I said, of course, as a white guy saying like Chinese, sure, we are not sure. sick men, right? It was like for him it was really funny, right? But uh anyway, I told him about the Steve Golden story, which I had mentioned uh we had mentioned, and I think Steve might have also told that story himself when he was our guest, but he definitely told me and I told the story at some point on the podcast when he was in the military and he he was like on furlough or something and he had a couple days to spend in uh, in Hong Kong. And of right. course, this was actually 
This, I think, was around 63, 64, if I recall. And it was before his time learning from Bruce Lee. But he was already practicing uh, karate. And, and he also was already a Kung Fu fan at that point. So when he right. went when he went to Hong Kong, he wanted to, like, find a Kung Fu school. And so like, white eyebrow or something? No. Or? He, he, it, well, oh. the story was so funny because oh, no. he goes into a taxi. And he basically asks the taxi driver to take him to a Kung Fu school. Which is, like, <laughs> such a such a funny thing in and of itself, right? So, and the taxi driver took him. Uh, now, uh, Steve didn't really remember the name and stuff, but, like, uh, he told me all the details. And then I remember that night I could not sleep right. because he's, like, he wanted me to figure out what school it was. And, of course, this is the exact kind of, like, puzzle my brain loves, right? Right, Okay, sure, sure. like, I knew a few things about the school, but I, I need to figure out what kung fu school did – Bruce Lee student Steve Golden go to in 1963 on the Hong Kong Island side, right? So I figured out that it was actually the very famous school of Lok Chi Fu, uh, the white northern white crane uh, in Wan Chai white on the Hong crane, Kong Island right, side, right? right? And then so Steve had this great like experience there where he went there, actually taught him some stuff. They were really open, which for 1960s Chinese Kung Fu masters to teach a Westerner like that was pretty impressive. And then uh, and, and then I remember I asked Steve, I said, did you ever tell Bruce Lee that story? And he said, uh, he said he did. And I said, well, what was Bruce Lee's reaction? And he said, Bruce Lee said he was surprised that they taught him. That was like the only thing he said. He's like, oh, I, I'm surprised that they took you in and showed you anything. Right. right, right so right. Uh, which which I totally concur, like <laughs> knowing how like it was a, a pretty level headed um, observation that Bruce Lee had. Like, well, I'm shocked that they, they taught you anything or even took you in. <laughs> so um, that school, oddly enough, is still there. It's in the same building. It's not it, it used to be on the ground floor when Steve was there. It was on the ground floor. Now it's like I think it's run by his son who's in his 80s. And um, I'm pretty sure, given the age of his son, that his son was probably there the day Steve there, Golden right, came. Yeah. Because his father, Lok Chi Fu, passed away a very long time ago. So I told this story to C.S. Tang. And he was like, really? And then the guy later went and became Bruce Lee's student. I was like, yeah. And I showed him the photo of Steve Golden with Bruce. He's like, oh, I've seen that photo before. I'm like, yeah, that guy learned from Lok Chi Fu in like 1963, right? And he was like, oh, too bad because I met with C.S. Tang like on my second to last day in Hong Kong. Right, right, and he right. goes, oh, next. He goes, next time you come to Hong Kong, I want to introduce you to Lok Chi Fu's son. And I want you to tell him that story, because if 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 there was a Westerner that walked into their school in the early 60s, for sure they remember it because that didn't happen very often. And right, you and, right. and you could tell that guy that he tell Lok Chi Fu's son that that guy later learned from Bruce Lee and he would love it. So basically I'm waiting to go back to Hong Kong to tell the That's son of awesome. Lok Chi Fu. So, so I, I, uh, I, I, it would be very interesting if he was there and if he remembered it because uh, I think this, it would actually make a great webisode, that story. Like get Steve to tell the story, go tell sure, Lok Chi Fu's sure. son and kind of mash it together and show the building now do like a you know even just a three minute little short video i think that would be, would really be great, that right? would be amazing yeah so uh that's the and for audience who are maybe a little bit newer <laughs> to our show the the story i just gave is kind of an example of what i do in hong kong i beyond just training and 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 you know kind of furthering my own wing chun education i literally just spend time with kung fu masters and kind of shoot the shit and find out stuff like this like Lok Chi Fu's son is still alive and was probably there when this thing with Steve Golden happened. So um, this is like this is the stuff that I live for. 
And unfortunately, kind of modern day Hong Kong is lacking anybody who's really kind of documenting these things. I think there's there's a treasure trove of of stories and the window is closing in terms of the people who are around and can can tell these things. So, yeah. So um, before we go on to our main topic, let's uh, give a listen to this. Hey all, have you heard that John Crucione of Laughing Dragon Wing Chun has an app exclusively for iPad about the science behind Dim Mok as it applies to Wing Chun? Dim Mok is the art of hitting weak spots or sensitive spots on the human body. Dim Mok, as taught by John Crucione, is considered one of the highest forms of Kung Fu target practice. He explains it in a clear scientific and anatomical principles and not just mystical theory or kung fu movie entertainment like the five-point palm exploding heart technique nonsense. The art teaches you how to apply the principles of real dim mock within your system of Wing Chun. This app is unique because it breaks down two different lineages of the wooden dummy form and teaches the most common dim mock techniques of the dummy form and how to make it work. Contained within the app are videos, photos, theory, and points which are must-have for any Wing Chun practitioner who wants to elevate their skill to a higher level. And version 2.0 of the app is on its way out. It's available in the iTunes store for iPad only. And folks, it's just such a cool thing to have, you know, an old science of Dimmock brought together with the new science of an iPad. This is a, I've seen the app, it's fantastic. And uh, it really is a must-have for, for Wing Chun Kung Fu practitioners. I hope you all enjoy. And we're back. Awesome. That was awesome. Yeah, that was great. Oh, man. So uh, that, was, that was John Crucione that we're talking about that has the ad with us. And, and he's the gentleman that uh, filled in for us last week. And again, I want to thank him. The main topic for this week is what's the pros and cons of being attached to a lineage. Mm. And uh, there's probably more pros than cons. And, and where this came from is uh, recently, uh, recently, today, a buddy of mine called me and uh, actually butt dialed me. He, he was, <laughs> and um, we started talking. He was like, oh, I got a story to tell you. <clears throat> and without getting into names, he had um, a few years of training in Jeet Kune Do, and then his Sifu, I believe, passed away. Mm-hmm. Or left, left town and then passed away. Okay. So he had no connection at all to his Sigong. And, and um, at that point there, he just moved on to like Wing Chun or something. And, and then he started getting interested in JKD again and wanted to reconnect with his Sifu's Kung Fu family. So... He was able to do so, you know, through the uh, beauty of the internet, use the internet as a resource. And he contacted the, the Kung Fu family, and they were like, sure, we, you know, your Sifu was a student here and a teacher on us. And uh, why don't you come over and we can hang out and train? And, you know, and he did. And he was excited and he went and reconnected with them. And I think, um, I'm assuming here, because he didn't specifically say this there was talk as to whether him being a representative, a representative of that lineage in, in that city. And um, because he had mentioned how they talked about them certifying him directly. 
because the Sifu is now gone, but they wanted to, you know, check his stuff. And he said that what they showed him was so completely different than what his teacher showed him. Wow. That he was blown away. To the point he goes, it wasn't just a little different. It was a lot different. <laughs> and now he's starting to think like somebody along this lineage, maybe even his teacher, hmm. just kind of like either made shit up or incorporated stuff that they had done previously or with another system and just called it all Jikundo. Weird. And, well, you know, it's funny. It's weird outside of Jikundo. But inside of Jeet Kune Do, it's actually pretty common. Because there's, there's, of course, in Jeet Kune Do, you have this perception that, oh, this is just your Jeet Kune Do. You're going to take boxing, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and whatever, and combine it and create your own Jeet Kune Do. Right. So if, if, if you can look at something like that and say, that's Jeet Kune Do, then obviously, in these people's heads, if they study, I mean, I'm making this up, Shotokan Karate, and then train with some JKD person, they just incorporate their Shotokan into their Jeet Kune Do, and it becomes something they teach their students, and now you have Jeet Kune Do students teaching reverse punches. Right. You know, and I think that this, and I'm going to say the word you're not supposed to say when it comes to JKD, this watered-down version of Bruce Lee's art is really what's destroying JKD as a whole. And he had said to me, he goes, you know, I don't know how much I want to now work towards the certification with them because of what they do is so different. Mm. So we started talking and I said, you know, at some point you kind of have to do a, uh, a, a better, worse decision as to how much, what, what kind of importance does having that lineage, the attachment to your lineage hold in your heart? If it, if it holds no importance to you whatsoever well then who you know just move on and do your own thing you have a certificate from your sifu and it's not like you're lacking in certification it's just you know you don't have your teacher anymore but if you want to have that association behind you if you want to have that oh you know oh he, these are my teachers now and the, here's a, a traceable route to bruce lee you kind of have to toe the company line. If you're going to represent an organization, at least in my mind, you have to kind of do what they want you to do. Right. If You know what I mean? Like, otherwise, get out. No one's saying you have to belong to that organization. Right. But, but, if, if you're gonna belong, yeah. but if you're going to belong to an organization and be a representative of that organization, you kind of have to do things their way. Sure. So, at, I don't know what the right... I know there's a term for, like, you know, a for better, for worse kind of thing. At some point, if, if, is, does lineage hold you back? Does lineage, does lineage does, or does belonging to an organization help you and hurt you at the same time? And right. I know you've had a lot of experience with this. Right. You, uh, you, you spoke highly of your Seagung, right. but you also left the organization. Right. So you've, you've had good and bad within an organization. Sure. And I was going to ask you, can you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of, of belonging to an organization? Like, I know you have your own Kung Fu organization, right? right? So mm -hmm. there's definitely, you know, you, you're, you're a proponent of it. It's not like you're going to say it's horrible, and I, and I definitely respect that. 
So, but like, like what in your in your personal experiences, mm-hmm. what would you say like are some of the pros and cons of belonging to an organization, a martial arts organization? I don't. I've right. never like Steve Golden doesn't have an organization, and I. I before I get to Alex, he like so I I I teach uh, Wing Chun, and my teacher was a disciple of Moya, but I'm very specific in saying I don't teach Moya Wing Chun. Because I don't, I teach my I teach Sean Madigan Wing Chun, you know, because I can't I I don't want to two things I don't want to say I have to do strictly what it was taught in the name of Moyat. And I, you know, what if I'm not good enough in my head to be part of that? So I don't want to be part of that. I want to be my own guy. You know what I mean? So I made the decision that to not pursue the idea of saying I'm going to teach Moyat Wing Chun. I teach Wing Chun. My Sifu is a Moyat disciple. I learned that system, but I do my own thing. And my, te- my, and my teacher's more than happy with that. But like, what decisions have you had to make in regards to an organizations and their effect on your life? Um, <clears throat> well, that that's a, a pretty broad topic, actually. There's a lot to unpack there because uh, the idea of lineage and organization, sometimes these are two different things. Sometimes they're lineages sure. that, that don't have an organization, right? They have a more loose structure, and some of them have a tight structure, but they're still not organized like an organization. So the, the, the first thing is that there's so many variables because what lineage and organization or association means for one person might have a totally different meaning for someone else. Some, some people have a very loose point, way of doing point. it, right? So, um, of course, it depends on the cu- – for me, it depends on the culture of the organization or the association. If you have um, a more organized organ- uh, stru- <coughs> culture like, for example, something like the European Wing Chun Organization – which is Leung Ting's representative in Europe, right? They have, not only are they part of a lineage, but they also have a structure that supports the students, supports the instructors. They have regular training. There, there's like a, it's kind of like a community. And in, in a lot of those aspects, it can be very positive. Of course, the downside is usually there's a certain way that you're expected to do things. And if you really like the way your lineage does it, you usually don't have a problem with that one. Um, but then the people who either want to do their own thing, like they want to expand beyond that, they usually got to go. Or the people who uh, think that they can do whatever they want and it's all the same, they don't like get it. They, it's like they don't get how bad they suck. They also think they can do whatever they want. <laughs> right, right, exactly. so, um, so, of course, you could have a good organization that's structured well and you still got problems right because you because you have people joining your organization who might be unbalanced and might not be the right fit so that is one issue you have to pay attention to there you could have a you could have the perfect perfect structured organization and still have problems right um and then of course some organizations are a lot more tight and controlling and they don't allow a lot of wiggle room to do things a certain way and others are a lot more open i think for me, because I was a very staunch representative of Leung Ting for a very long time and uh, went up to bat for him when people attacked him and, you know, was a card carrying member, as, as, as one would say, of his organization. Um, there were a lot of I got a lot of benefit from that. The, the way that, you know, it's structured is something that's really positive and, and very helpful. 
Um, but of course, there are a lot of politics in his organization. So when I left and I decided to do my own, I, uh, I, I said, okay, why don't I look at all my favorite organizations in martial arts, whether they're in Wing Chun or not, and look at what they're doing right or look at what I, I like how they're doing it. And why don't I just start doing that? Because when I first quit Learn Ting's organization, all I wanted to do was keep teaching Wing Chun <coughs> and just kind Sorry. of and just kind of fix the things that I thought were broken about Learn Ting's organization, and namely the politics and a lot of their kind of weird draconian rules with certificates and who can teach what and blah blah blah. But then I realized I was kind of trying to improve something that was a little broken to begin with. Right. There were positive things, but the structure of Learning Ting's organization doesn't fit to 21st century business model. And that's why they don't have any success in the U.S. And that's why the European organization, which is his representative, they're successful, namely because they don't really follow Learning Ting's way of doing things. Right. So right. so I decided to just have a top to bottom culture change the way the school is run, the way the organization is run, the better relationship and less controlling relationship I have with my instructors, that would only serve me well because those are the things people didn't like. And the other thing is this, I'm not, uh, and, and I think what maybe hopefully sets my association apart from the other, at least the other WT organizations, is I'm not evangelical, meaning like, I don't do what a lot of these Sifus, a lot of famous Sifus in WT do and also in the other Wing Chun styles. They try to take schools and students from other instructors and other associations. Uh, because what they want to do is they want to show I have X number of schools and look at me. I'm teaching seminars every weekend somewhere else. They do it for like social proof. Right. I don't do that for one main reason. My New York headquarters earns a lot of money. <laughs> I don't need to go and teach seminars. As I like to jokingly say, I don't need to fly to teach Bong Sao for cash. Um, right. People from all over the world come to New York to learn from me, so I don't need to fly out, which means I can spend time with my family. And I don't care if I – and what I always find kind of funny is I, I know people, they're like, I have 30 schools in my association and they kind of do it with like kind of chest-puffing bravado. How many schools do you have? And I go, I got seven. And they're like, huh? like kind of almost like, see, I got you beat, right? But it's like, yeah, but how much are you earning from those schools? How much time do you lose traveling to teach a seminar for five people in the middle of Pennsylvania somewhere, right? Right, right, and right. I don't, and, and you could have one school with 400 people or you could have 30 schools that have five students each, you know? And, and, and it's like it, it, you have it spread so thin it's not the same as having this big student mass of people who come to you, right? So um, I would, you know, much rather have, uh, you know, more students in one place than fewer students all over the world. So I'm not evangelical. I don't. People want to join my association from other WT schools. They're like, I'm an instructor from so-and-so. Can I join and run my school under you? And I just say no, because you didn't learn from me. I don't know what you do. And I'm, my name is worth more than you know, a couple bucks, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. So um, I'm not evangelical in terms of growing the number of schools. I'd rather have fewer schools of super, superb high quality than lots of schools that I can't manage. When I first quit Leung Ting's organization, I adopted a few disciples who were not originally from me. 
they came from the Lengting organization and they came over to me and they kind of ran schools under my banner and it didn't work. The quality is not the same. The attitude is not the same. They don't work quite as hard as my boys and girls in New York. So I realized the only way to grow my association is from within, from my own people. And I think sure. that is a big difference because what I see, and I don't know, maybe you can concur, in a lot of Wing Chun organizations and maybe in also Jeet Kune Do organizations, they want to take instructors from other associations, run them through a quick little course, give them a certain, okay, now you're under me. And right. I absolutely do not want that at all because <clears throat> if someone is so quick to dump their previous instructor, to jump over to me, to do some quick training and get a cert, that tells me something about that person. Right, right. And that's not – that's ultimately that is not a sustainable model. I would much rather have people come up through the ranks and, and really earn it and then run schools um, and come through the proper school culture that I try to build in New York and then try to adopt somebody else's, uh, you know, toaster leave-ins, you know. So it's like th this is – I can't do that anymore. I can't take strays off the street. So uh, it's not my style. So I think that changes the culture a bit too when, you, when you're not adopting strays and giving them your shirt and saying, now you, now you represent me having done a couple weekends with me. I tried it, and it just doesn't work. All right, so first of all, you look like the guy from Married with Children saying toast to leaving. <laughs> That's an old. Hey, I'm so happy that you understood that reference. I can imagine <laughs> that flew over the head of uh, many of our listeners. <laughs> Toaster leavings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that that's so I, I, I mean, I guess a long story short, it kind of depends on the individual association. You said you think that there are more pros than cons. I think in general, the way most associations are run, they're probably more cons than pros. But okay, well, I, I obviously don't have the experience with right organizations the way you do. Right. Um, and I've always been an outsider. Yeah. So I guess I've always kind of looked at the guys inside the organizations as and this you know as i'm saying it i realize this is actually a negative but i always looked at it as a positive i used to always say wow those teachers didn't have to think they had <laughs> they had curriculums right they had they had their drills set up for them they had what you know what this rank should have what this rank should have and i used to always be i guess envious of that a little bit right i used to always say oh wow man the guys in that organization look at that they have like everything laid out for them they don't have to think at all right like they have it, you know, I'm going to teach class 25C tonight, you know? Yeah. And, and me, I always had to teach from the seat of my pants. Right. I can't tell you <clears throat> the percentage of classes I started off with calling a student up to the front saying, okay, throw, throw a punch at me. And however I dealt with the punch would be the lesson. <laughs> that I didn't know what to do that day. So I would just say, Oh, here, come here. Alex, come here for a second. All right, All right throw, throw a lead. I want you to try and hit my face. No, no, no. We're like, hit, hit me in the face. Okay, and I would kind of maybe slip and, you know, slip to the right and you know, slip to the left and give a, a move. I said, okay, this is what we're going to work on. And I would build from there. Right. I was, okay, now we're going to change the footwork. We're going to change the angle. And I, and, I would, and I would literally build from this one little nucleus of, 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 a, of a natural reaction I had to something you threw at me. Sure. And that's how I would that's how I would teach. Right. And 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 I would always be envious of people in organizations mm -hmm. that didn't have to do that. Right. That well, if you said to them, "Oh, what are you teaching tonight?" they knew. Right. 
Well, I think that there's kind of a double-edged sword there because that kind of very organic way of teaching that you just described, I think is exactly how the senior students should be taught. So I, every Monday night, I teach what I call my inner circle class. And my inner circle is most of my senior students. They've been with me for many years. And I have a couple topics that I know I'm going to hit with them in that class. But I also play off a little bit about what they're doing, what they're working on, and what I feel they, uh, that they're lacking. And so it has a very organic feel when I teach that class. And I think that that's perfectly legit when you have people who have a foundation. I think when you have somebody coming in who doesn't know how to step or doesn't know how to punch, they need something a little bit more structured. And that's maybe the advantage of an association. And I think that if somebody comes from a very structured association or structured curriculum and then later decides to be a little bit more free form, I think they have an advantage because they know how to build up beginners and they know how to be free form with seniors, which I think is, right. a, is a good progression. Right. And, and, you know, you cannot stay completely structured with seniors because you need to give them a room to grow and experiment and try shit out. And you cannot be totally free form with beginners who don't know how to step or they don't understand anything. Right. So um, I think a mix of both strategies uh, works really well. Excellent. Excellent. So do you know of any new mo any new martial arts books that have come out lately? <laughs> As a matter of fact, I do. So funny that you ask. My Wait a second. Let me put my microphone down. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so uh, those of you who follow me on social media, I apologize because I've been pumping this stuff nonstop for the last few weeks. But my uh, long-awaited Chumkyu book has finally come out. It's called Seek the Bridge. And uh, unlike the, its predecessor, The Little Idea, this book is in full color. And it's also, also a completely different design because it was designed by yours truly. And it's a pretty fat tome. Of, oh. uh, of a chumkey book. So I'm showing Sean here. Of course, this doesn't help anyone who listens to our podcast, but I'm showing him the thickness of this chumkey book, right? The if, girth. The girth. If you put it up to any other chumkey book, I dare say it is the girthiest of all the chumkey books ever released. It is, def as I've said a few times this week, it's definitely not a pamphlet on chumkey. So I, I wrote this in the same vein as my first companion book, which is the little idea about the Siunam Tao form. I thought, what, what would I have liked to have known when I started learning Chumkyu? So because when you look at most books on the Wing Chun forms, it's like it shows the form in photo series and maybe shows a couple applications and it tells you what the form means and that's it. But this book is a lot more than that. It has the form in there. It has the applications, but it has like the glossary of terms. It has uh, it has the theory behind Chumkyu. It has why do we do footwork in Chumkyu? Why did we not do it in the Sunum Tao? Why do we have these kicks in here? Why are they not shown somewhere else? It gives context so that the student that's learning Chumkyu or the instructor that already knows it has enough background that they feel that they have more depth to the knowledge than just doing the form. So I, I have all sorts of topics on like I have a whole chapter on the Bong Sao Wu Sao problem. Why different Wing Chun lineages do it differently and why we do it the way we do it. And and not to say other people are wrong because they do it a certain way, but just to say this is how we do it and this is why. Rather than say we're we're correct because other people are wrong. That's always the whenever you pick up an old Kung Fu book, especially one written by a Chinese instructor, it's always like 
uh, the other people are wrong and that's why we are right. And I go, <laughs> I go, I, and I go, it's kind of a stupid argument to say everyone else in Wing Chun sucks. And the only reason you don't is because you don't suck, which just means you are the king of sucky people. You just happen to be the one that sucks less in a mountain of suck. Right. So I'm like, OK, <laughs> um, how about we put it on a level playing field? We say all these different Wing Chun interpretations of, say, Bong Sao have their merit. And let's say in their context, they all work. But I'm going to tell you why I do it the way I do it based on a logical explanation and not based on uh, because Leung Ting learned this in the latter period of Yip Man's career where he finally had a chance to refine it. And everyone who learned before learned shit, which is how a lot of WT people talk. Right. Because I find that's totally stupid and it's also incorrect. So I explain things in a very kind of logical, even handed and dispassionate way. And, and give very clear explanations. And I talk about some topics like uh, that are specific to WT people and that are also general for all Wing Chun lineages. So uh, the book is called Seek the Bridge. It's available on um, uh, my online shop, which is wt-athletics.com. So wt-athletics.com. And you can get it there. We have, I think, two boxes of the books left, which each box has 25 books in it. We we sold most of most of the first run in the pre-sale already. There was one school in Berlin that bought 25 books at full retail with shipping. It was pretty pretty hardcore. Um, and so, uh, uh, anyone who wants the book, we have a few more left. I will have a second edition after I'm going to send the book for review for Wing Chun Illustrated. So once they review it, and hopefully they don't think the book sucks, uh, I should be able to put a glowing review on the cover. So the second edition will have all the reviews in it. And uh, so we will have a second edition, but first edition is literally almost sold out, but you can get your copy at wt-athletics.com. It's $34.95. It's a 280-page book on the Chum Q form alone. That should tell you something. And unlike other Sifus who've written books on the forms, I don't pad mine out with a bunch of cheat charts of like meridians and a bunch of hokey nonsense or whatever. This is pure, unadulterated chum cue from beginning to end. All right. So uh, there's no fluff, no filler, no nonsense. If you're an instructor, if you're someone who's been practicing chum cue, if you have not learned chum cue yet, anyone will find a lot of uh, benefit in this book. And uh, hopefully, well, I know my, hopefully I know like my first edition book. Better be sitting on the side, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, you got to get in line. You know the problem about writing a book? Now, of course, Sean, you will get a copy. Don't worry about it. But you oh, know the. No, I know that shit. But you know the problem with uh, having a lot of friends in martial arts is all your martial arts friends are like, hey, uh, hey, can you get me a copy? And there's two issues with that. First of all, I have more friends than we printed books okay right. so so like i will just go broke giving all my friends of uh books second of all i actually don't handle any of the shipping and any of that stuff so i have people dming me like yo can you set a book aside for me and i'm like yo i don't handle that you gotta go to the online shop because i carol doesn't even let me touch the books because she knows <laughs> If, right. if you're at my school and I'm like, hey, have a book here, have one. Hey, you should have one. Hey, you want. And she's got like a whole plan to that. So she keeps me the hell right. away. So if you want to get a well, book, I'll, you don't go, go to me. I'm saying that I didn't ask for it. Before the show, you <laughs> it to me. That's true. That's true. 
So anyway, uh, yeah, I hope you guys like it. it it's um, I think uh, it's it's uh, definitely um, the best of all my books. This is the third book that I published. And I think it's the best, not just because it's the newest and I want you to buy it, but I'm also, I feel that I'm improving as a writer and, and also the design is a lot slicker and a lot cleaner and the book is in full color. So it just looks beautiful. It's a really, really slick uh, book on Chumkyu. I think people will find it uh, uh, maybe one of the most complete that they've seen. Even if you don't come from the WT lineage, I think uh, um, you can't help but uh, uh, learn from the book. I wrote it in a very open format. It's not tribal. It's not trying to push the narrative like a lot of other WT books are. It's just like uh, the old Dragnet series. It's just the facts. So... Right, right, right. Well, that's cool. Like, I, you know, it's it's an exciting thing. I, uh, I, I really think that it's it's a pretty damn cool thing to have a book, and you, and you do it well. And um, I, uh, I, I, I just, you know, I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to to checking it out. It's by by the way, I uh, I'm in now that I learned how to use InDesign and. I could design the books myself so I don't have to rely on outside designers. I'm like, I'm already writing my next book, which is about uh, Chan Chi Man. It's called Legacy of Yip Man. And it's also essentially the screenplay for the documentary. But I'm like in a book, I'm like in a book writing mood right now. So I'm like, I want to, I want to pump out some content. And I thought of something. Now, of course, it's a lot of work, Sean. And I'm pretty sure our podcast, I'm pretty sure our podcast partners might think it's kind of interesting. But I thought about writing two books together with you, and here's my idea, and tell me if you think I'm full of crap or, or maybe it, there's a seed of something there, right? Wing Chun for Jeet Kune Do people and Jeet Kune Do for Wing Chun people. That's actually really interesting. Yeah, right? Two separate books, right? So the Jeet Kune Do for Wing Chun people where maybe they learned a little bit about distance and timing and things that they don't talk about too much. And Wing Chun for Jeet Kune Do people because let's face it, what's sometimes represented as Wing Chun by Jeet Kune Do people is unrecognizable to me. And I'm a professional right. Wing Chun instructor. So, uh, um, you know, maybe maybe there's something there and they don't have to be big, broad, deep dives. They could be more like... Um, uh, uh, books to kind of just get the idea machine rolling. So they, they don't have to be big, thick books. They can be a, a, a little more succinct, but they can right. be something that might be helpful. I, I was thinking a two book series with the two of us doing something like that might be, um, might be interesting to the people out there. I don't know. What do you think? I, I, I actually think that's a very good idea. And we'll talk yeah. when we're done with the podcast. Today. Awesome. Sounds good. Cool. That sounds really good. Um, be, before we finish up tonight, just, uh, it looks like we're going to get to see McGregor fight again. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't hear about that. What what did... Um, uh... it, nothing's signed yet, but apparently they're looking at um, December 14th for him fighting Dustin Poirier. Again? Oh, so they're going to do that? I think so, yeah. Because mm, Poirier lost to... Uh, Khabib. Right, Khabib. And now Khabib's fighting... Um, oh, who's... I, 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 I heard I uh yeah, I don't I don't think he's got a oh. fight lined up yet. No 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 no. Oh jeez, who's fighting um Nate Diaz? Oh, that's Jorge Masvidal. Right, Masvidal's fighting and Nate and Diaz. And, you, and you know that that's for like a different belt. They have the BMF belt, which is the bad uh, mother effer belt. 
Um, oh really? Yeah. So so it's actually for the the bad mother effer belt of UFC. So apparently Dana actually created a belt just because they're they're like Nate Diaz and Jorge Masvidal are just two. It's like right. East Coast and West Coast, but they're cut from the same cloth, right? And I don't know if you saw today they had a press conference. It was either yesterday or today uh, in New York, and uh, Jorge showed up because uh, Jorge Masvidal is Cuban. And he showed up in the full white Scarface suit, the same exact one with the butterfly collar. It was so badass. Yeah, it was super badass. I'm really looking forward to that. And that fight, I think, is on uh, November 1st or November 2nd. I mean, it's the first Saturday of November. And on the same day, um, Canelo is fighting Sergey Kovalev, a friend of mine uh, uh, who I posted photos with him. Sergey Kovalev is the light heavyweight champion. And Canelo, he's a lighter weight guy who fought like Mayweather, and now he's moving up to light heavyweight to fight Canelo, and that's also a really intense on the same night. So we have one really amazing boxing fight and one really amazing <laughs> UFC fight on the same night. So I'm, uh, I'm super excited about that. That's just going to be amazing. And, and Sergey Kovalev was also the name of number 27 on the New York Rangers. And they're 1994-1995 Stanley Cup champions. No kidding. Wow, that's crazy. Absolutely. Yeah, I met Sergey uh, uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, he's a good friend of uh, one of my Cuban cousins who's a boxing aficionado and just like he's the man down in Miami. And he's like, hey, you want to go to, you know, the Fountain Blue Hotel, which is one of the most famous hotels in Miami Beach, and meet Sergey Kovalev. And I'm like, um, yeah, and I had dinner with him and his family. And we talked boxing and I asked him about training camps and how he cuts weight and <laughs> And how he trains, and it was just—it was just amazing, and he was super cool. Uh, so um, I had a great. So I'm—I'm I'm rooting for him, um, but I think the Canelo fight's going to be really good because because Canelo's smaller, but he's really fast. But Sergey has that reach, and he's got that power. So um, that should prove to be a really interesting fight. Oh, that's awesome! I know this has nothing to do with martial arts. It's just a cool story. So I'm telling it for two seconds anyway. Um, any hockey fans will love this. There's a there's a coach in hockey named Mike Keenan who's known for being a prick. And he was the coach of the Rangers. And Sergey Kovalev would always piss him off by not getting off the ice in time with his shifts. He would <laughs> almost stay on the ice. And he would get too tired. So Kovalev's parents lived in Russia. And then one day he tells the coach, my parents are coming to America. They're going to be at the garden on such and such a night. Can we get them tickets to, can I get tickets please for, you know, the, a booth or something? Right. And Keenan says, of course, we're going to do better than that. We're going to get them ringside, ice, ice side tickets right next to the bench. Mm-hmm. And he gets his parents the tickets for ice, ice level for the game. Wow. And then benches Kovalev. No kidding. Wow. And then benches Kovalev. He sat there, had him, he got, made him get dressed. And then never left the bench. His... As punishment. That, that's a prick. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's just such an amazing story. We <laughs> talk about how much of a prick a guy is. Guy's family comes in from Russia to see him play. Unbelievable. And they bench him. Unbelievable. <clears throat> All right, man. All right, brother. Good talking to you. Take care. And we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. Please help us get the word out there by sharing this and other episodes on your favorite social media platforms. If you're enjoying the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast, there are many ways in which you can support it. 
Go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out how you can help your favorite Kung Fu podcast. We are currently using Patreon to automate great benefits to those who support the podcast. As a supporter of the Dudes, you'll get early access to episodes, as well as a number of other benefits based on your donation level. This includes in-depth topic lectures and even monthly live video conferences with the Dudes. Again, go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out more about that. As always, you can help support us in small ways as well. Give us a like at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page and share links to episodes. If Twitter is your preferred social media outlet, you can follow the Dudes of Kung Fu there as well. Both Big Sean Madigan and yours truly are on Twitter too. Dudes of Kung Fu is now also on Instagram, so tag it along with the hashtag Dudes of Kung Fu whenever you post something related to the podcast. A great way to support the Dudes is to rate and review it on either the iTunes or Android app stores. The written reviews are immensely more helpful than just giving us a five-star rating. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please write us at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page. Please understand that neither Sean nor I can guarantee a response, but we will consider any serious suggestions. And finally, I ask that you help spread an open dialogue with other practitioners of martial arts. Chinese Kung Fu in particular has long since suffered from caustic political discourse, which can only change with you. Remember, the person you wholeheartedly disagree with doesn't love martial arts any less than you do. Take care, and thank you for supporting the Dudes of Kung Fu!